This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Uh, thank you for coming, thanks for having me, and thank you for all the panellists for coming today. We're talking about uh, storytelling in VR, and when Sally and I sat down and started to discuss the, uh, the kind of things that we wanted to talk about in the future and the kind of events that we want to have in these discussions, storytelling was obviously the first one that came up, because as everyone will know, storytelling is really the heart of... Um, well, most of entertainment media, and it's sort of no different within VR. Um, it provides new tools and platforms uh, to produce really great content that immerse the viewer into the action like like no like never before. Um, so we'll be discussing sort of new ways that we can uh, explore storytelling in VR, whether games or cinematic VR. And we're just going to touch on some topics as far as narrative, immersion, presence, perspective, direction, agency, and sort of discuss what the future may be. So uh, the panel tonight, we have uh, Brooke Mags. Uh, Brooke is, uh, has been named in the top 100 most influential women in Australia and New Zealand game industries. Her specialities are writing, narrative design for games, creative writing practice, games studies research, environmental and emergent storytelling, management of creative projects, storytelling for digital and traditional literature, teaching, public speaking and copywriting. So I'd like to thank Brooke. If you could give her a round of applause. Uh, Claire Frost. Uh, Claire is a writer, story developer. Uh, Claire has worked as a director's assistant, script coordinator, script editor and script screenwriter. She spent a bit of time in Los Angeles. She's uh, worked at Film Victoria as a manager in script development and recently worked as the writer and st story developer for the VR game Earthlight, uh, which is currently under, in development at OPAC Media. Thank you, Claire. Uh, Piers, and if you could, how do you pronounce your last name? I forgot to ask Mazared. you before. Mazared? Mazared. Okay, cool. I, I did have that. Uh, Piers is the head of production at Jumpgate uh, Virtual Reality, a creative studio uh, specialising in production and implementation of virtual reality and interactive content. Piers has completed over 70 VR projects uh, since Jumpgate's conception in 2014 and has extensive experience in roles of... Uh, including director of photography, editor and director. Thank you, Piers. And finally, we have Chris Bailey. Uh, Chris is a highly experienced, award-winning film director, motion, di motion designer, visual and visual effects artist. Uh, he has worked as an assistant director, producer, visual effects artist, motion designer, screenwriter and director in both the US and Australia. He's directed a, uh, the VR narrative experience entitled Across and is currently working on his first feature film, Lost in the Dark. Thank you, Chris. Okay, so I'd like to go sort of right back to the basics. Um, I mean, we've been telling stories in many different media. Um, and I'd just like to see what the panel thinks about what makes stories different in 
telling stories in VR different than our tra traditional media? Um, maybe we could start with Claire since she's right next to me. Um, so I think you touched on some of this in your introduction of all the topics that we were going to cover, but for me it's a lot of it is about perspective, being able to put the viewer, audience member, player, depending on what VR content you're putting out, in someone else's shoes um, and to give them the ability to experience something that they could never, something truly immersive that they could never experience in real life. And the other thing is sort of the fluidity. Um, fluidity has to do with perspective, so you could shift perspectives as well in the way that you can't in traditional media as elegantly, but also in terms of chronology and timelines. So you could go back and forth depending on you know, the way you design your VR game or film, you could really go back and forth in time in a way that's very different to sort of traditional media. Um, the difference too between traditional storytelling and the work that I've done in VR games is that the reader is a player. So you're always considering then um, how to keep them engaged and what the game is that they're playing and how they're interacting and how gameplay and narrative work together to um, first let the player know what they need to be doing but also secondly to tell the story. Whereas when you're writing a book or you know doing other traditional media you don't necessarily have to worry about that kind of level of engagement and interaction. Yeah. Is this one on? Yep. Yep. I think big difference for me is that the viewer, as, as mentioned earlier, the viewer becomes part of the story, even if they are a third, third person observer within that story, uh, due to the lack of distraction around them, the fact that they're completely removed from the room, their audio and visual senses are completely dominated, there's no distraction. So even if they're not directly part of an interactive story, they do become more absorbed in the world that they're surrounded in. Um, and that opens up all sorts of new challenges and opportunity for storytelling. Yeah, I'd say finally to add it, there's also a, um, there's a sense of reality to it when you're perceiving things that um, appear in three dimension and are you know, held in space despite where you move. It creates a believability that's, that's really unique to the medium, I think. And also, to the complete removal of personal space is really interesting. Um, you know, we're so used to having the wall of the screen, and you know, you can feel the tension in a horror film because something's going to pop up on the screen, and you're going to have that jump scare, and you know, you can feel like oh, I've got to close my eyes. But in VR, when when a giant you know monster is in your face, it's a totally different kind of uh, feeling, and it evokes um, much more of a visceral reaction to it, um, much the same way I think. When cinema was, was first born, and, in, and like the, that lovely image of the train that you know, the Lumiere brothers made, that you know, and the whole audience gets up and runs out of the audience, runs out of the theater. I mean, uh, it's similar for that with VR. You have that that visceral sense of, oh my gosh, I've got to get out of here. Um, my my personal space is being invaded by something. Um, whether or not that will fade over time, just as it's faded with cinema, I don't know. But at the moment, that immediacy is really exciting. So, if uh, someone coming from uh, a traditional media background, what do you think would be the first thing that they should think about considering that they're now working in an immersive world? Uh, are, there, are there some sort of key things that they really need to watch out for? Um, I guess Chris, you've 
Could you answer that? And jump in. I could go on for days about this topic, <laughs> so you just rein me in. Um, so that's that's what happened to me. So I, I'm coming from a traditional uh, filmmaking background. So you know, I'm very much used to having an editor and uh, being able to um, just dictate exactly what the audience is looking at. And so when I started working on Across, which was the the project I did last year, it was my first um, full VR project. I dabbled in VR before that. Um, the the things that I wanted to do at first, I wanted to bring just my storytelling um, into that space, and I think what was what was appealing was was the idea of immersion and having it, a story play out all around you. And um, I began to learn really quickly that VR requires a lot more of you um, as a viewer, but also as a storyteller. And you can't just take a story and put it in VR and, and put someone in it and expect an outcome. Uh, in the same way you could with film, because you can never dictate the way a person will experience it, because they're going to see it from a different angle, they're going to pursue different aspects of the scene, they, they have complete agency, which I'm sure we'll talk about more in a bit, but um, it's very easy to think, all right, I can, just, I can just give my viewer what I want, even if you're doing 360 video, which is, of course, there's no game engine now, there's no interactivity, and you have edits, and it is like a film in that sense, but what you can't control is what, what part of that sphere your viewer is looking at. And so you have to think about what are all the different possible juxtapositions that I can bring to this. Um, and that's a really, uh, really great step to begin to engage with me to think about, you know, if someone is looking straight ahead and I cut to this other 360 shot, what can I juxtapose, you know what I'm saying. Um, the, the image that's directly in front of them, you know, what's something I can cut to that, that you know, if it's, a, if it's a little boy and then I cut to, um, you know, a tree, you know, what's that going to communicate? Whereas if I rotate my sphere a little bit and now that little boy, I cut to an old man. Now maybe that has a different emotional significance. But not only that, now I have to think about what happens if they're looking off to the left or to the right or up, up, up above and how can I juxtapose, juxtapose that word again, um, those items, and, you know, to really kind of say something that I wouldn't have been able to say before with editing. Um, and so that's, that's really exciting. Um, but also too, I don't think we can, as filmmakers coming into VR, I don't think we should rest on the assumption that someone is going to view your, your experience multiple times to catch everything. I think that we should assume that someone's going to experience it once and walk away and tell people what they thought of it. And so you need to account for everything and you need to make sure that that experience is real for them, but also that they encounter all the important story bits. Um, and I can talk more about that later because I've had to deal with some specific scenarios in that, um, but I won't take up all the time. But um, And the last point to add on that was if... Um, if, if you think that, uh, a great example um, that I've just recently watched, uh, it's called Pearl. It's, have anyone seen Pearl? It's, it's made by, um, who's it made by? Google? Is that the team that was behind Pearl? The, the, it's like a musical. It's nominated for an Academy Award this year. It's a 360 video, and uh, it cuts to all these different um, things. Maybe I have the title wrong, but um, when I watched it, I experienced what I call um, uh, VR anxiety or viewer anxiety. I put on the headset and I immediately didn't know what to look at. And all this stuff's happening. And I'm like racing and I'm, I'm doing, and you do this. And you, you can see someone with VR anxiety when they put on the headset and they're just searching everywhere frantically. It's because everything's happening so quick and they don't know what to see and they, they feel like they're missing something. And it just has this kind of un, it's unenjoyable. It's, it's this kind of anxious, anxious experience. Whereas there's other VR experiences where they've designed it in such a way that someone actually fixates on something and then moves to something else. And then and wherever they look, there's a story and they're engaging with it. So that's. Because those are some of the things I think about. In that case, then you could can you consider that your story can be multi-leveled 
because you are now talking about a larger space. Well, that and with, with that fact that, you know, you're talking about one person goes in and has an experience and you, you're only assuming that they're going to watch it once. Could it be that other people could watch the same thing because it's multi-leveled and come out of it and talk about that experience and then allow that other person to go, oh, maybe I want to see it again? Yeah, I think that's taking VR to a whole other level in terms of an art form. Yeah. Um, that's the beauty of it. It is, it's really quite infinite what you can do. And so you can have a story that has so many layers to it that it's exhaustive. You know, you could cover all these different possible scenarios and branching paths. Um, in my personal case, the project I made had one, it didn't have any branching paths. Um, but I think that it's easy to approach VR and think, uh, especially as a filmmaker, that uh, I wanted to direct the audience just with sound and just with like stage staging. So, you know, what's happening, what's the lighting like, what's, you know, and it wasn't enough. And it, it, was a, it took me a long time. I resisted it until I finally realized that I'm creating something in a game engine. I should be using the, the tools that that affords me. And so that's when I began to code specific things into the, the film so that now what happens, so example with Across, um, the, uh, the, the, the film plays out, this short animated story of these two characters. And there's a, there's a bit of code going on in the background that's watching where the viewer looks. And um, one of the problems I ran into is every time someone watched it, they would, they would look over here and the animation would play out and they would miss it. And then they turn and then this person was gone and they, they never, what happened? I don't know. And then this character jumps and does this important thing and then they miss that story beat. And now they've got no idea what's going on. It's just them in an environment. So what I did was I made this bit of code that watched where the viewer was looking. And when the viewer, there's certain key moments in the story where I say, I tell the computer, don't play the animation unless they're looking. And so when the viewer looks away, it pauses everything. All the character animation stops that they're not looking at. And it plays out in front of them if they're watching this character. And then when this character's done with that animation cycle, it waits until they suddenly oh, come into the next, and this bit begins to play. And the fundamental change in the viewing experience was dramatic. So I went from people going, oh, it's kind of cool, this is a really neat environment, to, wow, it felt like it was happening in front of me. It felt like I was discovering it. Because it was just as their peripheral vision was kind of capturing the, the character that it would come alive and they would, so it was like they were just catching these moments. And it was really, it was almost as if the, the, the software was playing director and it was waiting to cue the right story beats. And I think that is really, have to have to think about it, whether it's multi-layered or single-layered. Yeah. Is there a term for that, 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 that function that we, that we would say within games? I, I'm I, I, I coined a term states by view. It's basically you, you, you're, you're looking at something and then a new state will play. Um, maybe we could sort of just touch on states if we... Or could you call it user-triggered events or something user -triggered like that? User-triggered events, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, that is a, a great way of helping to not, not quite make sure but encourage the viewer to see what you want them to see. Um, and obviously there's a lot more freedom when you're designing from the ground up with a sort of game engine CG environment. You can have full control over the whole world around you. In 360 video type scenarios, you, you can still do positional triggered events. You can blend some techniques together, but ultimately you do have to, and this is a big difference I think between traditional cinema and VR storytelling, is you have to encourage the viewer to see things that you might want them to see, but you've also got to accept the fact that a lot of them won't. Everyone's going to have slightly different experience, and yes, they probably won't watch it again. Mm. And if they do, they will look for different things. There might be a bit of a fear yeah. of missing out, which might encourage them to see it again, but 
Um, unlike something like photography, where it's almost as important what you exclude from the frame as what you include in it, when you're dealing with the entire environment around that point, you can't really exclude anything. Yeah. You can curate it to some extent, um, taking cues from things like theatre, stage performance, which has a very great use of space and uh, props. But when you're filming, a, for example, a, a natural environment, it is what it is. You can't move a tree. You can move the cameras a bit and help to build up the story with, with positions and cutting and helping to guide the viewer around the story. Um, or even feeding, if it's very important that they see something, you can feed it in front of them. You can cut with subject in front of them the whole time. Yeah. But that starts to defeat the purpose of having everything else. If yeah. you don't have to move your head, could it have just been a standard production? Um, and, and when player, well, do you consider how many, uh, the fact that people are looking in so many different areas when you're writing a script for that? Yeah, um, it, was, it was really building on what Chris has been saying. It was really interesting for me too. I also came out of extremely traditional film and TV background for years working in feature film and TV development and coming into this project where I worked with Brooke and not having a lot of experience of writing for games, that gaming gives us a lot of tools and techniques to operate in this new kind of form of storytelling but there's also a tension I think between wanting to direct the the viewer or the participant it's hard to even know what to call someone who's operating in a VR space like I don't think we have the right term for that yet because they're not an audience member they're not just receiving information they're part of the story um, but they're not necessarily always playing a game either so I don't know what terms we're going to come up with but there's a, there's a tension even when I was doing VR myself do you know experiencing other people's projects of like sometimes I wanted to spend more time somewhere and the and the experience would not let me the experience moved me on so I think that we have to think quite a lot about what sort of story we're telling what genre it is what kind of experience the audience wants to get out of it and what emotional experience they want to get out of it and then think about how we're going to adapt, whether it's cinematic techniques or gaming techniques, to give that perfect experience to the viewer, knowing that they are going to take it in a direction you probably didn't even anticipate. I think it's just, it's levels of complexity that we haven't really dealt with previously. So I think it's fascinating. Um, some things I was thinking about when you were talking, Chris, is when I start, you know, writing for a game or on a game project, I'm always thinking, who am I and what can I do? Um, and with VR, when you're starting your VR project, it's like, who is the viewer participant? Are they a viewer? Are they a participant? Are they a player? Um, and then sort of go from there when you develop your interaction points, I guess, accordingly. Um, you know, and then what tools do we have to, to do this? So it's like programmer, can we track the player's view? Can we tell if they're going to be in a certain point? So if they're gonna be here, trigger narrative regarding this. Um, and then something that once we sort of had a general trajectory, for example, on this project for a puzzle um, that was also telling a story, we had to come up with then 
a whole bunch of fail states, um, which again is similar to the states that you were talking about, but when a player doesn't perform the puzzle properly, if they drop the the tool that they're using to, to do the puzzle, you know, because VR sort of a lot of, you've got your hand held and you're moving objects around or, you know, doing things, if, if they do that incorrectly or they're not getting feedback, narrative can provide feedback. So um, feedback for a player is, you know, did I do the right thing? Can be anything from sparkles around an object because you've completed it, or it could be, um, you know, going red. And then what level of game do you add to that? Do you go full on sparkles or do you sort of have someone... For example, for us, we were writing dialogue, which was like, that's not the right thing. Maybe you should give that another go um, and then, you know, go through. So we sort of had to cover off then, okay, so what is possible <laughs> for the player to, to go wrong, basically? It's like where you could drop something, player could run in a completely different direction. It'd be like, where, where are you running to? Come, come back. <laughs> It'd be like, um, so, and you can set things to timers as well. So if after 30 seconds player has done nothing, trigger, hey, you might want to give that puzzle a go now, you know, dialogue, obviously within a more story context. But yeah, that, that's sort of something that, that I found interesting in terms of states and negotiating that and thinking about who the player is and then accordingly how do you not break the immersion but also, you know, give them cues about gameplay and, and how to do it. Yeah. And I think that one thing that was really interesting for us too was that the intention was to make everything super immersive and realistic so there were a lot of things that you might use in gaming that we actually couldn't employ as techniques to guide the participant or to move things along. So I think that that's another really big difference when you're working in VR is that every project is going to be kind of bespoke in a way. Every project is going to have its own needs and and you're going to be for, for a while until I guess some more strategies get built up because um, it's a pretty new medium for storytelling. Everyone is going to be kind of looking for those new techniques that work within the framework that they have. You touched briefly on perspective, right? So, what is um, what is the view of the, the the player or the viewer? Are they going to be first or third person? Um, I read a really interesting thing looking at the psychology of people um, going into immersion, and they put them as uh, as kind of observers in someone's bedroom, and automatically the the viewer felt really uncomfortable because they weren't acknowledged it was like there was they were peeking into someone's life so um i guess the question is how do you sort of deal with putting someone into that space and and how say we're just looking from a third person's perspective how do we then allow the viewer to feel comfortable in a, a multitude of environments whether it's a bedroom or you know outside or you know whatever um who would like to <laughs> that. Any thoughts? Yeah. Um, well, it's to some degree you can't. I mean, people are going to be uncomfortable in different ways, in different scenarios. And people, for example, are uh, in a cross, it's a disembodied experience. You don't have a body. You cast a shadow in the environment, which helps for plausibility. And it's a subtle thing that you don't think about. But when it happens, you accept it. And it just helps you. Just that little bit of extra gloss to help you feel like you're present. Um, which those kinds of things are fantastic. But that not being able to see your body really unnerves some people. Um, 
Also with a cross, it takes place with two cliffs kind of floating over empty space. Some people really freak out that they're floating over empty space. You know, it's kind of alluring. So um, other people don't at all. Um, so in some sense, it's almost just a narrative device. Uh, we can make people feel uncomfortable in new ways. It's kind of probably a better way to think of it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. You can use that as a device mm. to actually physically make them uncomfortable because you want them to... want you want them to, to be uncomfortable mm. but um, but if you don't want them to feel uncomfortable there are things you can do you know like you can give them a body you can um give them lots and lots of agency within a space you can have uh, characters directly um speak with them or appeal to them but if it's that third person perspective where you're like a ghost in the room um you know just giving them that distance to observe can sometimes help i mean there's a it's it's really is about context it's about what's the story what's the scene what's going on what's the space and what do you want the audience to feel and then play testing is huge as well so it's it's amazing how much you learn putting people through it um that's it's a huge thing yeah well um i did see i don't know whether everyone's seen henry the oculus studio little piece um they touched on that the way that they sort of sort of were able to make the viewer sort of feel more comfortable the fact that they were in his house his little house is that it only happens twice but he glances at the viewer just ever subtly and all of a sudden now you're comfortable you're like oh he acknowledged that i'm in that space so um yeah uh Brooke, would you like to i was going to say that it's um when so because i have a literature background this is sort of where my brain goes sometimes too is you know you have your story and then you have the way that the story is told, but then you can also then choose, you know, this is very much like we're saying ghosts and not being there or being there. You can, it's sort of like your omniscient narrator, you know, you're making the player sort of hover over things and not really do much, but the, the experience is the omniscient narrator or you're third person and you have a body and you're in the scene and you get to do things or you're in the scene and you don't get to do things, you get to watch, but people will still look at you. Um, and that's sort of more of a third person close. So it's sort of the decisions that you make when sitting down to write a story are almost similar except have completely different effects, if that makes sense. So can um, can characters look at you is is a good question to, to think about. But then when you read books, characters can say, you know, when you were doing this and you were like this in and person. in the second yeah. person and eventually you sort of work out who you are when, when you finish that story. Um, and that's really interesting too if you're hailing people who are in um, these VR experiences to a position that they then have to work out. That's that's interesting to me, really interesting. If I got to look down at my body and saw that I had a name tag on and I'm wearing a uniform and I'm, you know, then immediately I can draw conclusions about who I am in that point of view, which is really interesting. I think that's what I really love about yeah. the perspectives. Uh, Pierce, so you did a little horror piece. Um, yeah. Remind us what the name of that was, sorry. Uh, that started <laughs> I off saw it under a scare campaign. Yeah, that yeah. started off as um, we we filmed on the set of the scare campaign feature that we're shooting up in Beechworth and just gathered some footage opportunistically and put together a little concept clip, which was basically 60 seconds, ball bounces, you look at the ball, girl pops up behind you, scary, the end. So um, did you take the both perspective tr sort of positions there? So no, initially that was shot from observer and then you're an observer stuck in the middle of the room, basically. Yep. There was nothing, there was, you didn't have a body. Uh, in fact, it was so low budget and experimental, there was literally a black hole beneath you. I didn't even have time to patch in the floor where the tripod was. <laughs> so it was very crude, but you know, some people would look down and, and 
comment out loud, oh, I'm floating or where are my legs or um, they would acknowledge that kind of disconnect from their environment. But then very quickly they'd start looking around, notice the paint peeling off the ceiling and the ball bouncing and that sort of, they'd enter that state of suspended disbelief where they knew they were in a, in a digital headset they knew that there was nothing under them and that wasn't right, but they would start accepting the surroundings as their own surroundings to the point where when the, the freaky girl pops up behind them, they did physically react. Yeah. And I think actually th that's a sort of indirect way of including the viewer, of almost acknowledging them, is um, encouraging some sort of participation. It doesn't have to be direct, someone looking at you and saying, you know, copy me or catch this, but... If something flies at you, you, you react instinctively. Um, yeah. Did a cricket piece recently where we did actually give the viewer a body. So you look down, you see yourself, and there are some batting shots, some catching shots. Um, a lot of people, when they're, they're watching that, the key catch, they will actually put their hands up instinctively as well. So by grounding them with a body and then uh, also acknowledging them as a team member, that, that really helped incorporate them into the story and uh, give them some agency. Yeah. Um, so I guess what we could sort of touch on sort of techniques and devices that can help move the story along. Um, they can be sort of either, I guess, visual or audible uh, or even something else. Can you guys sort of explain what kind of techniques, uh, whether they're traditional or uh, sort of new techniques in which you can sort of help tell these stories, uh, Claire? So one of the things, when Brooke and I were working on this project, because it wanted to be very naturalistic and we wanted to allow uh, in certain scenes or chapters to allow the participants to kind of explore the world that we were in, but we still, but we didn't want them to stay in there for like half an hour or something or we, we wanted to, we needed to move things along at a certain point. We were exploring the idea of things like a smartwatch that would, you know, have your calendar on it and tell you, remind you that it's time to go and do something else. Um, you know, Chris mentioned that there are some, there are some sort of traditional cinematic techniques like the framing of a shot where a person's, a person's eye naturally goes to any movement. You know, if there's a sound behind you, you just turn to hear, to see what is going on. So sort of sound and mu movement um, are definitely a key part of, guiding the viewer but there are other ways you know particularly in games I think Brooke was talking about sparkles or if something has a certain glow or you kind of light an object in a certain way that draws people's attention to it but it's it is very complex because it really depends on what you're trying to do with the story. Um, I think an, another thing games is really good at is level design for that purpose you know to um, I was saying before that um, you can design a level with the way that you come into a space and ahead of you are two doors but you don't know one door exists because there's a big statue you know over it and you just naturally sort of run towards the other door because you're exploring and moving around and then when you come through into the room from another direction you actually now see that there is another door um, and you know it's a whole you know art to level design for, for that purpose sort of to encourage players to move through the space which naturally progresses the story but also might lead to or have um, what can sometimes be called set pieces in levels where they're 
you know, clearly a story delivering moment. And I use Bioshock as an example for that because you're always going through and seeing big statues that have big political statements across them and it, you, you understand more about the politics of the world by moving through that game. So that's, that's an example that jumps to mind. Um, just uh, some interesting things on that with, with this one. I might even just play this clip while I talk about it. Um, so this is uh, just the opening of a cross. Um, anyway, so the some of the things that are like in, in referencing to like game design and stuff, um, the the placement, so the placement of the viewer, but also the the placement of the the scene and the characters in the scene, all that stuff um, is really 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 cool. So this is this is just how it opens. This is just a screen capture of the. Um, um, There it is, of just someone wearing the headset. So this is um, what they see. But you can see how the world's set up. I've got these two opposing cliffs, right? And I move, I animate the the main person in, so you're being moved into this middle point, and then it stops, and now you don't move anymore, and you get to move around the space. But the way I've positioned the viewer is they have to they have to look left and right to be able to see the different parts of the story. And so, like, you see this guy comes out, and the, the audio cue for him was there, but it wasn't quite enough to get them to turn, and so again, that's where like the the programming really helped, because now you can see, okay, I can't really, you know, he's not seeing the other character. Now, some viewers they'll step all the way back, and they'll try and take in the whole scene like it was television, and that's just going to happen. And so, like that, that's something you can't help. But um, trying to get people to get into the scene and have them interact with it is what's most exciting. And there's one scene; it's not in this, but um, the middle scene of the film takes place way down in this cave, and I played around at first with this idea of you were standing um, in the cave uh, in this like rock space and there was this opening kind of down to your feet. And the scene is actually taking place in another room, right, in the next chamber. But you appear in this other room first and the idea was you had to kind of figure it out and see that there's this cave down there. And I wanted people in their VR headsets to get down on the floor and crawl, but no one would do it. Like, they would all just stand there and they'd kind of do this and they'd wait for something to happen. And I had like light shining in there. I had sound effects. I had, I had particles like kind of float. I had everything and no one was going down there. So eventually I just had to adapt to that. And that's where playtesting was really helpful. I needed to change how I approached the scene. So I, I lowered the viewer so that now when they appear in the room, they're now chest deep in water and here's the cave right in front of them. And they see the character coming down and the cave's dark. The other room's bright. And so that in itself was inviting to get people to look. But then I had the character walk and out of the range of view from the cave. So the character's now off somewhere where they can't see them. And that was what worked. So now everybody suddenly started to move forward. And they would take these cautious steps, afraid they're going to run into the bookcase or whatever is in the room. you know. But they'd, And they'd peek around the cave. And that little bit of um, interactivity helped increase that plausibility that I'm really here because I've got to move around something to see. Like that little thing was a huge, um, I guess, helpful twist. So, so that's good. But I think too, also thinking about in terms of a stage play is really helpful. You know, we can think about, we can take a lot from theater um, and apply it. So the way you, you know, can isolate characters with light, the way you can use sound, um, all that kind of stuff's, you know, naturally really important and really helpful. Um, but yeah, those are some of my observations on that. I guess in that, um can can VR take learn a lot from theatre? Um, 
do you guys have you are you guys into theatre? Have you guys sort of taken some of those devices that they use within theatre to and put them into your, your VR experience or games? Uh, well, yep. n not not with games, but I've worked with choreographers and directors adapting stage performances to camera. Mm -hmm. So actually taking something that was um, designed to project to an audience and then turning it in on itself so that the audience was now in the centre of stage. So the performance was uh, one example um, with the Sydney Dance Company still used the space really effectively and I think that's where uh, stage shows, dance uh, and theatre really, um, they've been working it out for thousands of years. It's a really tried and tested and uh, experimented form of storytelling and I think there's a lot to learn um, with the spatial awareness. I think that's, back to the first question actually, a big difference for me in the storytelling is having to have that awareness of space and yes, theatre does that really well. Yeah. I'd love to see someone watching a theatre th show in VR and someone sneaks up behind the protagonist and people are yelling at, like, in the headset. <laughs> um, do you, have you learnt a lot from theatre, Brooke, on, with, with designing games? Does it sort of work in the same way? We have looked at theatre, uh, but I think theatre definitely has things to offer VR in terms of the performativity that's, I guess, increased in VR. Like, there's a certain amount of performativity in games, um, but it, with VR in particular, I guess very much leading on from what I was talking about before where you're you're sort of trying to work out what you're supposed to do like what and if you are being asked to perform like in games you often are you're often asked to um, be be a certain type of character or and you go that's cool I'm gonna not going to be that character I'm going to be my own character and do things that are completely not true to the identity that you're given. <laughs> Um, so games in that way let players be subversive but I think definitely with VR especially the kind of spatial awareness that comes from theatre is very helpful and also thinking about just set design has always offered a lot to level design and things like that and you know voice performance and all of that kind of thing. I personally haven't looked at a lot of theatre as a way to research the projects that I've been on but I definitely think that it's worthwhile doing and I probably will do in the future, um, especially because when I talk about what excites me about VR, I often use the example of um, improvisation when you jump into a circle and it's like, okay, and now you're swimming. And then it's like, no, you're not. You're putting out a fire. No, you're not. You're performing brain surgery. No, you're not. You're going to the moon. And then that's the kind of thing that games and, I guess, VR experiences can do. They can definitely just go, and that's not happening. This is happening. And you just go, okay. And then you, you go with it. And if you're committing, you're having a lot of fun and really enjoying it. So, yeah, I think definitely. Like, having coming at it from an improvisational point of view just to start off with really helps. Because um, you're always trying to run scenarios regardless of what story you're writing, to pick the right scenes and the right scenarios to tell the story you way, the way you want to tell it. So there's that aspect of it as well. Yeah. Um, I'd just like to touch on empathy because empathy seems to be really important in VR because um, if you get the viewer offside, then they're just not going to enjoy it. So um, how do you... How do you start looking at telling stories from that kind of perspective of having to um, get the, the viewer on side 
right from the beginning? Well, I think, first of all, you don't always want them on side. You don't always want them to have a good time. Um, <laughs> you don't watch a horror film because you want to feel warm and fuzzy and smile. Yeah. You want that 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 tension, that um, you know, the jump scares and things. So almost um, you need to get them into the mood that you want them to be in as soon as you can. Well, not necessarily. You can build up to it, of course. Um, empathy itself, that's a yeah, big topic. We could have a whole other session on <laughs> this. Um, in fact, there was one the other day, actually. And, yeah, I think it VR does have some increased level of power to in induce a bit more empathy, perhaps, than standard media, uh, traditional media, it, in that it, it is a little bit more immersive. And, again, that's another buzzword we could talk about bit longer but um, again taking people out of the room removing distractions and things yeah. does get people a little bit more invested in what's going on around them and I think that can lead subtly to a, perhaps a level of increased empathy but yeah um, I think with all storytelling you have empathy if the storytelling's done right so if you have um, like a movie um, you know square one like the first thing you've got to do is, is uh, make a film that uh, is executed at a really high professional level because if it's not, if there's some bad acting or some bad editing, you jar your audience, they're out of the experience, they're thinking about the fact they're watching a movie and they're no longer connecting with your characters. Same with a novel, if you've got spelling errors and your punctuation's all off on page one, no one's gonna care and they're not gonna connect to the characters. But if, if the technical aspects of the medium are executed flawlessly, then they disappear and suddenly now people have permission to just engage with what's happening as if it were real. So we always bring that you know, that suspension of disbelief we bring to everything um, when we're engaging with, with stories, I think. And so VR is exactly the same. It, you know, if you've got a story about a character and you can help the viewer forget the fact that they're wearing a mask and it's, they're viewing something being generated by a computer and help them just to pay attention to what's happening, you're going to get empathy um, in the same way that you would through anything. I think what's interesting is how uh, with VR things look so, they seem so real because of the fact that they fill your field of view and that they're three-dimensional and, again, you can move around them. Um, and so that, I think, invites people perhaps to get into that space uh, quicker. Um, but you can also jar them just as fast and remind them they're wearing a headset. Um, and a good example is actually, I think, with Henry, that, that short. So I was really excited to see Henry because um, I saw the trailer for it. And it looked amazing and I couldn't wait for him to look at me, you know, and to feel like I was really there because he was looking at me. And I finally downloaded I've watched the trailer, right? So they, they released a trailer, which is just this black void and the character appears in her and he walks right up to you and he's looking up at your face and I loved that trailer. So then I saw the, the full, full version and, and I'm sitting there and I'm so excited, you know, and I'm on this little cushion in his house and it's like, wow, this is really great. And then I hear him and he starts to come into the room and I'm like, oh, cool, Henry. And I lose the camera tracking because I lean too far out of the range and it grays and it, the head jerks and I get nauseous because the camera jakes because it doesn't know where I'm at. And so I'm pulled back into my cushion and I'm a bit chastised and... He walks into the room, and I'm like, okay, I want to get a bit closer, you know, but I can't. And I became very aware of the limitations of the space uh, because of the tracking. And, um, and so I couldn't connect to the character. So that's a great example, I think, because I loved the trailer because it was fully immersive and engaging, and I was just me and the character. And it was doing things, it wasn't doing things to remind me of the digitalness of what was happening. Um, whereas in the full version, it, was, it just didn't work. I would have much rather watch that as just a 2D short, you know, on a screen. Um, and uh, I think that brings up a really interesting, that starts to connect in with agency 
Um, which if we're, we're going, th- are we going that way with agency? I'll, oh, I, I just, I just wanted to say a couple of things about empathy too, because I think that empathy in VR is fascinating. First of all, VR can be a machine to generate empathy. There is absolutely no doubt about that. When you look at things like the doco short clouds over Sidra, which was set in the Syrian refugee camp in that you're invited into a world that most of us, you know, in our privileged position will never be in and have just a greater understanding of what people are going through in these kinds of situations. And I think that that is quite astounding and I think it can be quite moving for people. So there's sort of, when you think about empathy in VR, it's not only empathy with the characters or trying to create empathy within a story, but also that ability to for the first time really put someone in someone else's shoes there's also something else that Brooke and I were looking at today that was shared by a friend um, about a VR project um, that that basically got men and women together and you scan each other's bodies and then you through this process you can actually be in the body of a man if you're a woman and in the body of a woman if you're a man and you can see the world for a short time through that person's eyes and how that changes your perspective and I think that that is really fascinating. But then when it comes to narrative, I think in first-person VR stories, one of the really interesting things is that a lot of the time you won't be able to see yourself. You're going through the world and you know, we, we have a kind of a, a sense of ourselves every day by seeing ourselves in a mirror, by knowing what we look like in photographs, by we've sort of built up an image of who we are as a person. And then you're going to put someone in a VR game where they may never actually see what they now look like. And how does that change the participants' relationship to that character and what they're doing and how does that interaction that other characters are going to have with them, which is going to be so immediate and so kind of like maybe sometimes discomforting or disturbing, how how you, do you negotiate that? In, in horror, I think like you use that to your advantage all the time or in action or adventure. But in drama, I wonder how we're going to deal with that because I think that sometimes something will be better as kind of either a stage play where it's sort of a it's three-dimensional but you're talking about three walls not breaking the fourth wall or as a two-dimensional experience I don't know how you are going to do drama in VR without it coming across as super melodramatic or you know yeah it's fascinating well that goes down to what kind of stories are appropriate for VR um and I guess we're we're still experimenting uh and we'll we'll find all that out but is there anything that comes to mind that you just go, that story would just not, shouldn't be in VR at all? Mm. No? <laughs> um, it's hard to know at the moment because, yes, well, I said we are all experimenting. So. I often get approached by people with ideas and I'm quick to suggest to them, or ask them the, the simple question, is it worth doing in VR? And if they can give me a good answer, then perhaps then they can actually weave, it, weave the narrative into the VR space. But if they answer with something like, oh, because it's cool, that's not good enough. Yeah, yeah it's, it's fun new tech. It does have a certain level of um, novelty right now, but that's not a good enough reason to use it. You shouldn't use tech for tech's sake. It's a, it's a good tool for the right stories. Is there a right kind of story? Not necessarily. I think with the right storytelling, you could get all kinds of genre in there. Yeah. Um, horror is a very obvious one because... 
you do have that um, suspense of not being able to see behind you. On on a single screen, you have to do that with cutting and yeah. sort of POV techniques and things, but it's really easy to freak people out when they can't see behind them. <laughs> um, so yeah, there are some obvious applications, but that doesn't mean they're necessarily the right ones. Um, yeah, I, I do think that yeah. it's a lot of flexibility. So we'll go into agency now, as Chris said. So in horror, <laughs> I mean, how do you... If, so, if, someone, if you freak someone out, I mean, how do you deal with that with, as far as that person sort of not, you know, running into a wall, you know, away from the thing? I mean, well, I mean I'm talking about like, you know, people wanted to sort of stop that person or yep. whatever. I mean, how do, you, how do you keep them engaged and keep watching without sort of totally freaking out? Oh, some people will rip it off and refuse to watch yeah. anymore, and that's fine. They, yeah. <laughs> and that's actually probably the most entertaining for everyone else, but... Um, it does also mean that they have, I guess on some level, bought into the experience and do feel a certain level of agency within the experience. Um, I think giving, as for keeping them safe, um, you know, if they're seated, obviously they can't run away quite so quickly. Uh, I think invigilation is fairly important. It's nice to have that safety net of someone watching. So I think it's not quite ready for... Um, unsupervised use yet. I know museums are trying to implement it and it's, it'll get there, but yeah. um, that's straying off topic a bit. Um, as for agency, I think the more degrees of freedom you can give the viewer, the more they will feel a part of the experience. And that's where 360 video live action content can suffer, suffer a little bit because you've only really got rotational freedom. Um, even things like slight head tracking parallax, really, it, it's, it's subtle, but it adds a lot to the, the feeling of it being natural and people buying into the experience. Then give them room scale freedom and interactivity with their hands and it's a whole new level of agency. Yeah. And that's that's really exciting. Yeah. Um, well, just on sort of those two, two topics, both an empathy and agency. Um, Brooke, how do you, I mean, yeah. you're, trying to, you're trying to get someone empathetic with the character and they, uh, you know, what if they feel like they don't want to or... <laughs> You know, how do you deal with that, the the agency there of someone just going? I don't. I want to go off and. Do yeah, I don't. Different. I don't care about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I okay. So um, storytelling and empathy. Um, empathy is really important word because when you're with your main character, you want to feel empathetic for them, which is not necessarily sympathetic for them. So you don't necessarily want to feel poor them. That's not me, <laughs> but poor them. Um, but when you're when you're empathetic um, and you feel like you sort of you sort of understand how they feel in their shoes, that's that's a different feeling and doesn't have to be about characters that are necessarily nice, um, which which gives you license to have your unreliable, unlikable um, protagonists because even though we don't like these protagonists, we still empathise with them. We kind of know. We, or we understand why they're doing what they're doing. Um, and then when it comes to agency in games, um, you know, I think I think we get a little bit carried away by saying we want the player to have so much freedom. We want them to have so much and just all of it. Um, and that's really hard to develop for, first of all, um, because if you, you then have to consider all of your scenarios like we were talking about before. Um, in order for it to feel real as a player, I should 
technically be able to interact with everything, which in game development is expensive. Um, and then um, if we want it to feel even more real and have more player choice, then the narrative would have to branch, you know, in so many different directions. You know, if I say this to that person, they then feel this way about me. We, we were talking about implementing uh, a narrative system potentially that... Um, tracked the way characters felt about you. So there was a level system we were we were brainstorming thinking, okay, one, they're not happy with you. Two, they're moderately happy with you but couldn't care either way. And three, they really like you. And then the characters can move between those depending on the dialogue options that you say to them, which is how many RPGs work, right? So the, the idea is that you love that you can do certain things which annoys some characters and, you know, excites others. And then you feel that agency in that world. But those are very big games that have teams of writers and teams of, you know, people on them. Um, you know, even just for, um, you know, the projects that Claire and I were developing, we sort of considered if you complete a puzzle this way, this will happen and this character will respond to you this way. And then same another way, that was very tricky to do. Um, so the, the, you're never actually, you're only giving as much agency as you want to give the player. You know, you're still, you're still the, the, I guess, author for a certain, for want of a better word. You're still making choices about how much agency to give and how much choice to give depending on the story that you want but also constrained by the project and the timeline as well so there's some other things to think about when it comes to those. At, at times do you really have to direct uh, the player to, to a certain way like sort of restrict their agency into direct them towards Oh all the time yeah. yeah yeah games games are games are essentially a bunch of rules that you have to follow or, or you don't <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, but having said that, you know, um, players are, you know, suspend their disbelief or go along with those rules or don't. So a game of basketball is this is the court. Those are the rules about a certain shot equals a certain amount of points. And then players then perfect those rules, but also find ways to bend them and be better at the game and things like that. So, you know, from just a purely sport perspective, we still believe in the rule structure and the rule set, and that is what creates the game. But then when you're the writer coming to the project and those rules aren't fully developed, it's really interesting because you get to sort of say, well, the rules could be um, in order to tell a better story, if that makes sense. So. And it's sort of what you're trying to do, I think, a lot of times, especially what Brooke and I were trying to do in this project, was pull off a magic trick where the player felt like that they had all this agency, but the agency only operated within kind of parameters that you were setting up. Because otherwise, I think it would also be exhausting for the players. Like if every single thing was interactive in this world and every single thing led you into a memory or somewhere else, you would get lost in, in that kind of labyrinth of the game and you would totally lose the thread of the story. So it's somewhere in between you have like when you're watching traditional film and TV, you don't have any agency and you have all the agency. Somewhere in between there is the sweet spot, right? Um, another thing too to think about with agency, because I really think agency is everything when it comes to VR. Well, 
It's not everything. We actually don't know what everything is yet. We're just still figuring out the rules. But it's very important to me personally. Um, and uh, but thinking about what are the what are the what are the barriers that your viewer could break that would break immersion. So like what I was talking about with with Henry. Um, and a good example is when I saw um, the short um, Alumet, which is the 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 animated short um, that uh, came out a little bit ago. The difference, fundamental difference between that and Henry was that it was done in miniature world scale, right? So all the characters were about this this high. And um, so now suddenly when I saw that, the set was in front of me and I could move all around it. There were no barriers for me. So the set was with contained within the tracking camera of, of the headset. So to walk out of tracking would mean I'd be walking away from the story and I don't want to do that. And everything that's interesting is right here. So suddenly now I can engage with all of it. And that's what I did with the cross. Everything, the characters are about that big and everything kind of fades off to nothing. So you don't really want to go beyond the tracking bounds. You stay within them because that's where all the interest is. And you forget about the fact that you're being tracked. You forget about the room that you're in. It's a great sign. You've had a really good VR experience when you take the headset off and you're like, whoa, I didn't realize it was facing the door. I thought it was facing the, where did the computer go? You know, like that's, that's excellent. And so that's, that's one way to do it. Another one I saw that was really great was, um, it's the one of the early demos that was out. Um, I forget what it was called, but it was like a, it was like a, a galaxy space sort of simulator, and you're sitting in a chair that's floating in space, and you can go see a tour of the different planets, and they're like huge, like Jupiter's massive, but you're in a tiny chair floating in space. You have no desire to get off that thing because it's terrifying, and so you're completely now you 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 have the agency of this space, and that's all you want. So it's kind of like don't put, don't make your viewer um, want to step out of the tracking bounds. Try and figure out how can I make sure that they want to stay within those tracking bounds. Um, and I think that's where we kind of have the, the conflict of the promise of VR and the reality of VR. We want the matrix, but all we have right now is, you know, a desktop experience that's quite confined. And so how do you either let them move, uh, interact with things? You know, one of the number, the number one, like, most selling VR experience so far, I think, is the job simulator. Is that, it's, and that's, you know, you're, you're at an office desk and it's, just, it's this hilarious game where you can just do anything. And talking about, you know, what are the fail states, you know, they, they went in and designed this by purposely trying to come up with what, here's what we want them to do. Now, what are all the billion things that, that they're going to do that we don't want them to do? And now let's come up with hilarious results for each one of those. And it becomes this wonderful experience that's so real because you can pick up the coffee cup and pour the coffee under the copy machine and hit the photocopy. And, you know, you can, you can stick your face into the photocopy machine and you get this hilarious smiley face that comes out. You can, there's all these things that you can do and it becomes real for you. Um, so that's why having like your hands in the space is really valuable if you can achieve that. If you can't have that, figuring out other ways of having some kind of level of interactivity or thinking about the, what are the bounds of the space that you're telling your story within. That's a really important one, I think. Cool. Um, um, thanks, Daniel. Uh, I guess the final question for tonight is uh, from me, anyway, first time, is uh, what do you guys think is the future within storytelling in VR? Just briefly. I know it could, we could talk about that forever, but thank you, Cleo. Um, we don't know yet. I know that's a lame answer, but I really feel like it's true. We just we just don't know until people start to try and tell stories that haven't been told before in this medium. We don't know what people are going to come up with. And that is, to me, the most exciting thing about this new space. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, it's, it's interesting, though, to see um, as what happens with... with all, 
many stories is them getting translated across into a different medium. So, you know, um, you know, like uh, I've seen like VR noir is very much taking, you know, a very, very old genre and putting it in a very, very new medium. That's interesting to me. And I imagine that we will run the gamut of all of those things and see what's that, what works and what doesn't in terms of what is cool about the way that you translate your genres into a new medium and translating stories that are quintessential in other mediums across in telling them in a new way could be really interesting. Yeah. I think as the tech progresses and more and more people start telling stories, they're going to have to keep pushing boundaries to make the stories cut through. At the moment, we're probably on the other side of the novelty phase to a certain extent where people are looking for more out of VR. A lot of people still haven't used it. Um, First-time users are much easier to please than veteran users. So you can get away with a lot more when it's a, a new audience. So as we get more and more used to it, we're going to see more and more elaborate stories. We're going to see stories better told and really excited to see what people do with it. I think we're also moving towards as the augmented technologies start catching up and we start mixing real world with narrative elements, those mixed stories could be really quite interesting and I think could potentially have more more market uptake, more more social impact as we you know, our, our daily life could become the story. So, yeah, it really is. So. Um, I guess as a filmmaker, um, one of the questions that so, sort of has come up a lot with funding bodies and things like that is like, what is your distribution pathway and how are you going to reach your audiences? Um, what do you guys see as a feasible way to engage audiences? Is it through film festivals? Is it through galleries? Is it, um, I don't know, I, I'm just intrigued to hear what some people are doing and how they, they're captive, cap getting people to watch their content. I've got a suitcase and I uh, put my computer in it and I roll it around to whatever the event is and set up. And that's, that's been actually this really funny kind of going back to like the old days of film reels and projectors. I feel like, you know, I was doing a presentation at MIF the other day and it was like carrying this, all this stuff and setting it up for them and here, let's have a look. Um, but, uh, but beyond that, so there's, there's a few, um, the platforms are kind of being established um, through the main headsets, and that's where a lot of the big commercial focus is. So um, like with the HTC Vive and through the Steam, uh, their store, um, also to like Oculus, their store, um, there's not that many projects on there at the moment. So even just putting something up in that space um, is a great way to get eyes on it. Um, festivals, it's debatable. I mean, they're great to, so you can get the little laurels and put it on your poster and but um, but it's also festivals are still trying to figure out how to show this stuff to people, and they're selling tickets and kind of you know putting people through the experiences. But such a limited amount of people get to see it, um, so it's almost like go the go the the indie film route of um, sort of grassroots distribution and connect with your niche audience, social media the heck out of them, and uh, find a way for them to. So you, I mean, if you have it, it's like if it's a game engine you know piece, they can even just download that as a package directly and you know you can bit torrent that thing and get it out there and you know build in some kind of analytics into it so that um you can record how many people have seen it and that's getting sent back to you or something you know but um it, it is definitely it's not very traditional so it's yeah it's a little hard to communicate that to the funding bodies but um
Uh, distribution has been one of the big challenges, particularly early on when there weren't that many headsets in, in the world. There was the first version of the Oculus and then Google came out with their little cardboard kit. That was nice, but not really a, a good enough experience to get people excited. So early on, it was actually easier to create certain types of content than to actually show people. So we put on activation events, um, helped out Adelaide and Sydney Film Festivals, put on their VR exhibits by providing gear and tech support. Um, the stores are a good one now. They're a little fragmented. So they're sort of, if you have that device, you have that store. Or if you've got all of them, then you've got content sort of scattered all over the place. Um, monetizing it, even bigger challenge because <laughs> to a new media in an age where no one wants to pay for anything. Um, so actually trying to generate revenue from it is, is almost more of a challenge. So yeah, good question. I don't have first-hand experience on, on this kind of stuff, but uh, a lot of my friends are comedians and the way that they sort of Sort of go towards f getting funding is a lot of YouTube hits because the funding bodies will read those figures. So with Daydream coming out, I don't know whether YouTube can be still a really good device to getting those VR pieces out there. Um, because if you do and people start watching it, then the numbers just keep rolling over. And that's that's something that just can be shown as like, oh, look, look how many people viewed my piece. So I don't know whether that's still... Uh, still a way to go forward, so, yeah. And I think moving forward, the funding bodies will create, probably create separate streams for VR, so it will be like when you apply for funding for games development, it's not the same as funding for traditional film and TV. You don't need the same kind of distribution deals in place and things like that. Um, I know Screen New South Wales was doing that, but then they got subsumed into a whole new organisation, so I don't know if they're still going to be doing that. But, yeah, it's not hasn't quite caught up with the technology yet. Um, hi. Um, I just wanted to ask what are the most interesting live-action... Oh, God. <laughs> live-action narrative um, fiction things you've seen. Was that, um, I, I myself am more interested in that than animations. Just, um, yeah, recommendations and also ones that are experimenting with things like moving the camera or other techniques so it's a general question i haven't i haven't actually seen this one but this is the one i would like to see it's called perspectives um that one looks amazing and it's done by i can't remember her name i actually wrote it down um on the page i dropped on the floor um uh made by specular theory called perspectives which is a mini series vr by rose i can't say her name um, but basically, multiple points of view, short stories that are all interconnected, where you, um, uh, you know, think a certain thing about one character from one story, and then in another story, you sort of change your mind about them because of a new perspective that you see. And I'm, I mean, that's up my alley. I love that stuff, but it, it's been particularly lauded as a really good one. not on the panel <laughs> but um there's a Cirque du Soleil live action video which is the f one of the first live action ones I saw and that was the one that I went oh this is awesome because uh during the piece I'll I don't know whether to give it away or not um no do it no <laughs> look 
watch it. There's lots of there's lots of little things that actually make you think that you're that you're actually causing the action to happen, and they just use these little little devices and looks and stuff, and uh, it's just great. It it made it made me feel like I was one of them, uh, and it was it's just a linear piece. It's great. Any other questions? I don't really have a question, but I thought, given we're talking about funding bodies, being a representative from Film Victoria, um, but I wanted to kind of, because I kind of am across VR from a from a from the state funding agency, and I guess to touch on a couple of things that have been said, um, I heard the woman from Cirque du Soleil speak and referencing back to theatre. They use a lot of their knowledge that they've gained from theatre design and stage design, and bringing people back to a viewing perspective with characters and they use that in their VR um, stuff. Um, and there's, I think there's a project, I don't know if it's actually been released yet, called Halicon, I think, which has got a VR, it's, it's, I think it was been produced in the US with Sci-Fi Channel and they've got a VR component. And talking again about the story and the context of the story, the story itself is actually about um, the CEO of a VR company gets murdered. So it's a bit of a thriller. And so there's some, yeah. So there's a, there's a story reason, there's a context as to why you have these VR components. So a bit like when um, you used to have, you know, the old school, uh, what, you know, multi-platform, multimedia. And so you'd have those spin-off online components. It sounds to me like this series is straight delivery broadcast, but it has some VR components which augment the story. And obviously this in the context of the story, it really works. Funding. Um, so, I mean, from our perspective at the moment, um, we see VR as another platform. So, you've got broadcast, you've got feature film. VR is just another screen, in a sense. So, while you might read our funding guidelines and we don't specifically mention VR, we are, in fact, already funding VR projects through both documentary development. Um, we haven't yet had any projects come through production, but I think it's only a matter of time. There is the matter of um, market, um, but that can take many forms. And we are seeing that there are, I, I, my personal belief, so this is without my Film Vic hat on, um, I think depending on the content will dictate the kind of market and business case that you will see. So where it's a kind of, game piece of content. I think your app markets and Steam and those kinds of places, that's the market, the business model that will start to manifest. I think where you've got perhaps more narrative documentary content, you might start seeing um, something that looks a little bit like licensing or acquisition at the back end. You've got Jaunt and some of those other platforms which are doing profit share. So, you know, there's a user pay, SVOD kind of model. So, um, yeah, come and talk to me. Um, just to add on that too, one thing that I'd mentioned before was that um, there's not a whole lot of content out there like this, and there's there's providers that are really wanting to try and fill their rosters out. So it's actually for a filmmaker, it's remarkably easy to get a sales agent um, with this kind of stuff um, and to get in contact with these distributors. Like that, that's been really that's been really cool. Like like with Across, I've been surprised at that. Just how simple. I mean, it's not the most amazing piece at all but it's just been a whole lot easier getting that stuff to happen um, and then I was also going to add um, just the second part of your question about the um, uh, about live action VR stuff the about the camera movement because um, we haven't really touched on that at all and I think it's an important note is that um, 
motion in VR, as many have probably experienced and heard, can create violent motion sickness in a viewer quite suddenly. And everyone experiences it differently. So everyone's on a spectrum. You might not really experience it. Other people might experience it a lot. So you can't show it to a few people and say, oh, they didn't get sick. I'm safe. Because as soon as you do, a lot of people, you're going to get those one or two that you know lose it on your VR headset. And that's an expensive piece of equipment. Um, but some of the techniques that have kind of been um, proven so far that are working, um, one of them is um, if you the, do these sort of like really slow moves, that can that can be safe. It's it's fast stuff. This gets dangerous unless so a, a gradual like speed up is bad. But like that sort of if you kind of switch into a fast move um, or yeah, that that really helps a lot. Also, lateral movements really bad. Like that for some reason just makes people very sick. So trying to keep it just forward and backwards um, and up and down uh, that can be good. Another one that someone's theorized about that seems to work pretty well is for fast motion is to actually vignette the view. So you, you shadow box the view so that you kind of have like this narrowing of what you see down to this sort of you know really tight, tight circle. And now you can do a lot more motion and it's not as, it doesn't induce motion sickness as easily. Um, so that's another uh, kind of way people have approached it. But it's definitely experimental. It's worth testing it with a lot of people and just being aware you can't just, you know, you can't just stick a 360 rig on someone's head and have them walk through the city and you know now you've got this cool VR thing because everyone that puts it is going to be like oh and they just lose it um, so uh, that's 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 really important I think to take note. Yes, everyone does have uh, have their own tolerance to mo to motion. I've found exploring this quite a lot that acceleration is bad. Um, changing direction is an acceleration. If you do things very gently, it's a bit more forgiving done a few head-mounted projects, even on bicycles and um, horse racing, and it's risky, and some people really dislike it. Um, probably a good example is a uh, helmet mounted on a cyclist. We actually had, this was actually a creative agency wanted to do this, I strongly recommended they didn't, but they assured, assured me it was okay. Um, head-mounted cycling piece, and the viewer was on an exercise bike. And we aired this at the um, Tour Down Under village in South Australia. Probably showed a good thousand people over four days. And there was only one person who really struggled. And I was very surprised. Um, so I think it's definitely not a no-no. Uh, I'd say use it wisely. And I think it's quite an exciting um, contrast to static shots. If it's still the whole time, it gets a bit boring. That might have helped, yeah. That might have helped. Didn't actually think about that. Good point. Yeah. Possibly, possibly. Um, a, yeah. a quick point. A quick point on the movement um, is actually, if we are, if it's something we are used to experiencing, it's more problematic. Uh, from the game point of view, they tried it on on racing car games. Everybody was sick. Yet, and I get, I normally get really bad car sickness. But if you put me in a cockpit of a spaceship. I've never done that. I've never, and so there's a, there's a disconnect that we have. We all know what a car movement is like, but we don't know what it's like to be in an aeroplane, like we might know in a passenger aeroplane, but being in the cockpit of an aeroplane doing a barrel roll is not something that we're used to. So interestingly, the more disconnected to what we really do, i.e. being stuck on the back of a giant eagle, for some reason we have less problem with than if you put it in a car because we're very used to it. It's the, the, the whole issue is the inner ear. If, if you do anything that basically the inner ear should be detecting lean or gravity or whatever, if it doesn't get it, 
that's what makes you sick. And so for some reason, that, and that's why the walking thing is a problem. Um, the horse riding thing is probably a problem. The car racing thing is a problem. But you stick somebody on something completely fantastical, weirdly enough, it's less of a problem. I think this is like a whole extra night of talking, yeah. the, the motion stuff. Um, yeah, a really short one. Does anyone have a really short question? Dun, 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 dun. No, then maybe we have to vamp out now for two yes. minutes. Uh, well, thank you very much, guys. Uh, if we could ever give the, our lovely panellists a round of applause. That was amazing. Thank you. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website.